Let us pray together. Dear God, what a beautiful morning it is. We give you thanks for it. And we pray now for a fresh anointing of each of our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we might comprehend and experience in some fuller way today the breadth and the height and the depth of your love for us in Jesus Christ. And that your transformational power might be made perfect in our weakness. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our sisters and brothers in the Eastern Orthodox part of the Christian family have a special love for icons. And if you sit down with an Orthodox friend, they will tell you that an icon is not a picture, it's not a painting, it is a window into divine mysteries and realities. And so this morning I invite you as uh, I speak to have before you open this window this icon of Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, you'll remember that Saul is a Jew from Tarsus, from what is Turkey today, and in our story, he is already a Pharisee living in Jerusalem. He is completely scandalized by the claims of the followers of Jesus, the people of the way, saying that a crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah of God. He believes that this Jesus movement is dangerous and has to be destroyed and snuffed out. And so in Acts 7, we see Saul actually cheering on a mob. Think about this. Holding their coats while they crush Stephen, a follower of Jesus, to death with rocks. Now, I mentioned that gruesome, and it's a gruesome scene, to help us to understand that that sword that we see in the window opening before us in Saul's hand is no artistic flourish or accident. Scripture tells us that Saul isn't just a Pharisee, he is a zealous Pharisee. And what you have to understand is that in the first century, zeal doesn't refer to warm feelings in your hearts, in your heart. It refers to the willingness to kill somebody for what you believe. That's what zeal is. And so, breathing threats and murder, breathing threats and murder, Saul is now on his way to destroy the Christian community up in Damascus, 135 miles away.
Saul does not become a follower of Jesus because he is disillusioned with his Jewish faith. He does so because he is literally knocked off his high horse. Look at your icon. On his way to Damascus. Paul is blinded by a flashing light and hears Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And for Saul, this encounter with the living, risen Jesus changes absolutely everything. His first sermons up in Damascus after he regains his sight all proclaim a very simple reality. Jesus really is the Messiah. And in meeting Jesus, Saul experiences a love like he has never experienced before. As he says in Philippians 3, nothing, nothing can compare with the surpassing value of personally knowing Christ Jesus. Personally encountering Christ Jesus. And in today's story, this past week, it dawned on me that outside of Damascus, we see Saul dying and Paul rising. We see him mysteriously participating in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Did you notice in verse 9 that when Saul is without food and without sight, how long that happens for? Three days. Just like Jesus And it's during his time of praying. I have to notice that. And I have to bring that to your attention. It's while he is praying, blind, up in Damascus, that Ananias comes to raise him up to his new life in Christ and to baptize him. And let us notice that in Christ, in Christ, now becomes the phrase that Paul uses 164 times in the letters that we have of his in the New Testament. It is his code for the new participatory life. The new participatory life he is experiencing in Christ and that we may experience as well in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, he tells the folks up in Galatia. It is no longer I who live anymore, but Christ who lives in me. And paradoxically, the more that Paul becomes like Jesus, the more Paul fully becomes who he really is. In the same way, folks, the more we allow Jesus to shape his character in us, the more each of us will become more fully who we really are. 
more fully Titus, more fully Rhoda, more fully Rose, more fully Merle. The more you become like Jesus, the more you will become who God made you to be. And as a symbol of this transformation, the writer of the book of Acts, from chapter 13, verse 9 onward, stops calling Saul, Saul. (laughs) You ever notice that? And starts calling Paul, well, Saul, Paul. You with me? And this isn't just a switch from his Hebrew name to his Greek name, which it is. But it's a sign that this is a transformed follower of Jesus now. So, how does God actually transform Saul into Paul? And how does God transform me and you as well? By wiping out everything that we are? Or by redirecting it in new and life-giving ways? I believe that God takes Paul's greatest shortcomings and deficiencies and transforms them into unexpected gifts and strengths. The brutal persecutor now becomes the tireless preacher. The zealot is transformed into the spiritual leader who's never afraid to face an issue head on. Isn't that true about Paul? Whether you're talking about circumcision or food laws or sexual immorality, he's on it. God wastes nothing in Paul or in us. Everything, everything, everything is used and reintegrated in Christ. Did you know that it's estimated that Paul travels 10,000 miles during his 30 years of ministry across the Roman Empire? 10,000 miles, not on two wheels or four. Some of those are ship, are on ship, but most of them are walking 20 miles a day on Roman roads. Travel is sometimes grueling. And dangerous. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes about three shipwrecks, crossing dangerous rivers, attacks from bandits, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and cold. Wow. Life on the road. And then, after Paul finally arrives to his destination, he often receives lashings, beatings with rods, and even a stoning. But for Paul, these hardships are much more than just a means to an end. 
If the love of God was made visible in the sufferings of Jesus, then how can He make visible the love of God in any other way Himself? If the love of God was made visible in the suffering of Jesus, then how can Paul make visible that same love in any other way? And in our icon today, this full participation in the life of Christ, including His suffering, not just walking on easy street, including his suffering, is the meaning, I believe, of that crown that he is offering Paul. In Christ, the Saul who was willing to kill for his faith now becomes the Paul who is willing to suffer and die for it. You hear the difference? And that's what Paul eventually does, doesn't he? In Rome in the mid-60s, executed by the Roman Empire. Now, we all usually think of Paul as the great missionary. And he is. But we often overlook that he is also our first known Christian mystic. Who through prayer and visions directly experiences the fullness of God's love. In Ephesians 3, our call to worship today, we hear Paul describing the awesome dimensions of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. It's height and depth and width and... What's the other one? Friends, you don't pray that kind of rapturous language about God's love unless you first experienced it yourself. Indeed, in our second reading, Paul describes a mystical experience. Did you notice that? where he's suddenly caught up and taken into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, he's not quite sure. And Paul there hears things that cannot be repeated. These experiences of God's love not only comfort and amaze Paul, but also change and transform him. They are, I believe, what cause him to lay down that sword in our picture today. Which symbolizes all of our inner and outer violence that we want to inflict on others. And it's that same experience of God's love and grace that causes us to lay down our own swords as well. What's that sword in your own life? here this morning that you need to lay down. Now the thing about Paul 
as we read about his ongoing transformation in the New Testament, is that the presence, the lingering presence of Saul, (laughs) the zealot, is never far away. Even after Saul becomes Paul, there never seems to be a middle ground with this guy. You you ever notice that about Paul? (laughs) You're either with him and you're right, or you're against him and you're wrong. And in his letters, those who are against him are the frequent recipients of his slashing sarcasm. Let's call it what it is. In Galatians 2, he calls his opponents that circumcision faction. We're so used to it, we don't hear the hilarity of that. I mean, think about what that means. Or don't. 1 Corinthians 2, he calls them super apostles. I don't think he's praising them. In Philippians 3, he just calls them dogs. And in Galatians 5.12, you can write this down. Galatians 5.12, he wishes out loud that they'd all just go and castrate themselves. Talk about a cutting remark. Uh... Just trying to keep you all awake on this summer morning. But friends, what makes Paul such a compelling figure is his ongoing awareness of his own brokenness and vulnerability. We have this treasure in clay jars, he says. So that it may be absolutely clear that this transformational power belongs to God and does not come from us. Or as Leonard Cohen sings in one of his songs, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul shares about an affliction that he calls his thorn in the flesh. What is that? Folks have been speculating for centuries. Is it emotional? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? We don't know. But we do know that three times Paul begs God to take it away. But God tells him instead, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Friends, sometimes it's in our places of weakness and vulnerability that we can be most available, most accessible to God, to the world, and to each other. Sometimes it's in our places of weakness and vulnerability that we can become most accessible to God, the world, and each other. Not in our perfection, but in our weakness and vulnerability. 
So let me close with a little personal story. All week I was wondering, how am I going to end this sermon? You know I love stories, and so i got to find a hook for all of you to go home with. And at the office on Friday, I was renewing my application for visiting folks at the county prison when the Holy Spirit said, that's it. That's your hook. It happened when I came to the question that vexes me every year. Have you ever been arrested? Sigh. Now I'd like to tell all of you that my answer to that question is yes. Because I was out protesting for what is good and right. But that's not why it happened. Instead, back in college, I was arrested after I ordered a fake ID from the back of Rolling Stone magazine. (laughs) So that I could go out with my older friends, including my older girlfriend, who's sitting here this morning. Sorry. (laughs) The police caught me one night in Mishawaka, Indiana. And I was held in jail until all my older friends could come bail me out. Now, unlike Paul, I didn't have a vision of, of Jesus from Jesus that night. But I'll tell you one thing, I will never forget the sound of my cell door clanging shut. I think police do that on purpose. And I do believe that God used that whole experience to wake me up mightily and probably to really jumpstart the transformation of Todd Friesen. Now, I share this story with you this morning in case you ever make a big, big mistake in your own life, want to talk about it, but doubt that I'd ever be able to understand. Just try me. I also share it as a reminder to myself that every time I go visit folks up the hill in the county prison, I've got a whole lot more in common with them than I usually want to admit. You see, we have this great treasure in clay jars so that it may be clear that the transformational power of all of this belongs to God, comes from God, and does not come from us. There's a crack in everything, including your pastor's. That's how the light of God shines through. Amen.